hockey! It's Canada's national game! But, unfortunately, the hockey industry in Canada doesn't reflect the diversity of its fans. In this episode, producer Daniel Centeno tells a personal story about his experience as an Asian sports fan and how he's navigating the overwhelming whiteness of the culture around hockey as he tries to be one of the chosen few who gets to write and talk about it for a living. This is Same Difference. It's June 7th, 2003. I'm sitting in my living room with my sisters and parents. One of the only nights I'm allowed to stay up past 10 p.m. on a school night. It's game six of the Stanley Cup Finals. The Mighty Ducks of Anaheim must win to force a game seven against the powerhouse New Jersey Devils. After finishing seventh in the Western Conference, the hopes of Anaheim's surprising Cinderella run rest on the shoulders of team captain Paul Correa. There are two milestones that Asian Canadian hockey fans will remember in the early 2000s. First, it was national pride when Team Canada won the gold medal at the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics. The second is the play of Paul Korea. The Japanese-Canadian superstar was part of that Olympic team and is the player every fan, like me, looked up to. Korea's dominance is arguably the reason I cheer for the Ducks to this day, despite never visiting California. In 1993, he was the first player ever drafted by this franchise. As soon as Paul entered the NHL, everyone in the hockey world knew about the Mighty Ducks because of him. In a sport dominated by white players, it was Korea who I idolized and looked to as a source of belonging. Hockey is Canada's sport and is valued as a source of national identity after all. If there's room for someone who looks like Korea in the NHL and on the Canadian Olympic team, then there's a place for a fan that looks like me, a half-Filipino, half-Chinese boy who wants to be part of our national game in any capacity. I don't uh, know exactly how I got involved in hockey because neither one of my parents were ever from hockey backgrounds. Um, but uh, obviously coming from Canada, there's a lot of interest in hockey in Vancouver. It's a really big sport. Love of hockey grows as I get older, but it becomes abundantly clear to me that Korea's superstardom, let alone his presence in the game, is an outlier. Korea retires in 2010, 11 points and 11 games shy of 1,000 due to concussions that cut his Hall of Fame career short. After stints in Colorado, Nashville, and St. Louis, it's Korea's contributions to the Mighty Ducks and Team Canada that I will forever cherish in my childhood. With his absence from the game, there is no emerging Asian superstar to take his place. Was built on the shoulders of this 5'10 superstar, and he will always be remembered for being the mightiest of the mighty ducks.
Fast forward to the university years, and I'm studying to one day become a sports journalist. Hockey remains my number one sport. Let's cracks begin to show. Stories of a long-standing toxic culture, racism, and bullying emerge. Suddenly, on a wider scale, Canada's game is challenged. Does the sport truly reflect its diverse fan base? Can I, as an Asian Canadian, ever think it is possible for me to build a career in hockey media? When I can recall one or two prominent Asian journalists across North American hockey coverage in my lifetime. For TSN.ca, I'm John Loon, Broussard, Quebec. What are my chances? The signs are usually subtle as you get older. You're always the ethnic minority among your hockey-watching friends. You start a hockey podcast, and you're one of very few non-white hosts. Your racialized friends feel more comfortable watching baseball and basketball, two sports not labeled as quote-unquote a rich white boy sport. Suddenly, as one incident is reported in the news, the serious details about the game's culture are revealed. Developing news out of Calgary starting Flames coach Bill Peters following allegations of racist comments towards Akeem Alou when he played with the AHL's Rockford Ice Hogs back in the 2009-10 season. If a colored person or someone a minority does something the same as maybe a Caucasian person, it's looked at a little bit differently. Um, what, they, what they wear, how they act, what kind of music they, they listen to, how they speak. When I look back to my fond memories of National Pride and the Mighty Ducks, I start to think, why have the negative aspects of hockey culture remained so silent to the wider community? Perhaps it's my fandom from a distance or my own passion of its players and teams that kept me in the dark, but I would like to know why hockey's culture in its current state has been nurtured for so long. I'm Daniel Centeno. Today I explore hockey's culture far removed from my childhood nostalgia and debunked as a source of national identity. As I continue my journey as an Asian Canadian journalist aiming to one day work in the sports industry, I gather insight from a former junior player, a sports psychology expert, and a racialized hockey journalist about the realities of the game's culture and how positive change can happen moving forward. You know, the, the, the picture of me in, in, in my article that's like the cover with, with the hockey flags in the background, like my grandparents used to have that picture um, in, in their home with, you know, with my cousins and, and, you know, all my hockey pictures and my cousin's hockey pictures. And I remember looking at my cousins who, who's white and looking at his hockey pictures and thinking like, that looks like a, a real like Canadian, like hockey kid, you know? And I looked at mine and I was like, this, this doesn't look like that. Like this looks like out of place almost. And that was just how I, I perceived myself. And it's, it's really, really damaging, right? Because like you have to navigate where do I fit in this identity that is so closely tied to the sport? And, and I don't, I don't look what, like what it traditionally looks like. Um, what does that say about me? What does that say about my place in this country? What does that say about me belonging to Canada and me being Canadian? Tyler Griffin is a student journalist at Ryerson University who has had firsthand experience with the highs and lows of hockey culture. Playing in junior hockey for the Smiths Falls Bears in the Central Canada Hockey League, Griffin recalls fond memories of camaraderie with his teammates. However, he remembers the key moments when he felt like an outsider for being half Thai. Griffin chronicled his experiences in his feature published in HuffPost Canada. You know, it's it's weird. Like I, I definitely remember it kind of making that switch around like you know, 11 or 12 was when people kind of really started to focus on the fact that I was like Asian and I was I looked a bit different, but you know, it was kind of, 
it, it was very innocent at that point, right? Like we were so young and I don't think anyone really knew the nuances of like what these things meant. And I don't think it like really affected me then because it was all people that, you know, I, I it, it didn't feel menacing and it didn't feel like it was something that was trying to other me. And I, I still had these very, very deep friendships with these people and, and I went to school with them. And in a way, like I remember, you know, like when I was um, like 11 or 12, like my friends used to just call me like Asian instead of my name. And they'd just be like, yo, Asian and stuff. And like, I thought it was funny. And like, I, I, I was like, oh, cool. This is something that like people know me for and, and people kind of like identify me with and, and it makes me stand out. And, and it wasn't a bad thing then. Um, so, was, you know, I, I was a kid. I didn't know much about racism or, or identity or anything like that. While his race was pointed out by his white friends and teammates, Griffin did not mind. However, once the competition became more fierce and players entered AAA hoping to break into the Ontario Hockey League, Griffin remembers insults and racist acts becoming more normalized and pointed. And then I, I think it was about like 13 or, or 14. No, no it, it was like 12 or 13. Basically, once you know you hit like AAA and you start getting like really serious about it and people start thinking like... um you know, like, let's, let's start thinking about playing like for a career and let, let's start putting our kids in like hockey camps and then playing in the spring. And, you know, it starts really ramping up because you're, you're approaching the age around 16 when you're, you're looking at like the OHL draft and, and that's the next step up before you make this a career. Right. Um, and that was when kind of things started getting a bit mean. Like I remember, you know, we, we you know, we were at that age where, where boys were kind of just aggressive in general, but it, it started to get a bit nasty. And I think that just came with the game getting increasingly competitive. And, and it, it went from something that was like a fun little quirk and like a fun little joke to like, you know, the, this, this makes you different. And like, I, I think that a lot of people saw that as a way to like get ahead in the game, right? Like it, let's, let's, let's put this kid down and, and he might not have a, as good of a chance. And then I might kind of be able to get it. Like, it's not that literal. Right. But it kind of, that's kind of what the subtext felt like. And it felt like that's, that's when it switched, if that makes sense. In his HuffPost article, he chronicles a mistaken own goal, which was angrily met with a racial slur from his goalie, who was a childhood friend. That was actually like a goalie who I played with for years um, and was a very, very good family friend of mine. Um, and, and, you know, I, I still to an extent consider him family, even though we haven't talked in a while. Like we just grew up together. And he grew up in rural, uh, you know, rural Ottawa. Um, and I, I don't really blame him for saying that and I don't blame him for how he behaved and, and I would never ever turn him away if, if he ever reached out to me like and I think that just kind of goes to show like how close it was like it wasn't all it was it actually was way more from within my own team and within my own teammates than it ever was from uh, opponents you know because you just spent so much time with them in the locker room and and so much time kind of just joking around at tournaments and stuff. But yeah, it, it did manifest some sometimes in really, really nasty ways. And I remember like walking away sometimes and feeling like, okay, that felt different. You know, when I didn't have the words to kind of like express, you know, like these, these very complex ideas of, of racism and, and microaggressions in hockey. Like I remember just walking away and being feeling like that didn't feel funny or like that, that didn't feel friendly. Like that just felt like, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel great after that. And it's weird, like you're just you're just this young kid and you're, you you have no idea why you feel that way. And you kind of just like put it in your back pocket because it's your friends, right? And it's your hockey team and and then you love the game and you love your teammates and, and you do anything for them. So it's it's a really, really weird mix of like, I 
I, I can't distinguish where this is, these are my friends and these are people that are, are really harming me and harming how I see myself. That is probably the most harmful idea that I, I've ever had, you know what I mean? And then I, I really, really internalized that. And for most of my life from that point on, like I thought I was white and I tried to be white and I tried to be as white as I could. And, and you know, not, not just even in appearance, but in how I spoke and, and what I said and what I talked about. And I, I just fell so far into that identity that eventually I was like, I, I don't even feel like myself. Like I feel like kind of a shell of, of, of these other kids who, who are really, really into this, but I don't feel like I have my own distinct identity. And, and I feel like I'm just doing this to, to get by and to, to not be this, this huge target, you know what I mean? And, and I was, I always kind of had different interests on the fringe. Like I was a big reader. I was, I was really into art and I was really into music. And I, a lot of that was so stifled by the fact that it was seen as, as pussy shit. And, and, you know, like people would make fun of me for it and, and it wasn't manly and it wasn't masculine. So I, I really, really pushed those interests to the side. And at one point I, I just didn't even recognize myself. Like I had my flow and I had my cap and I had my Sperry shoes and I was like, who am I? Like, who, who am I doing this for? You know, and that realization is, I, I'm, I'm glad that I, I came to it, but it, it was years later and it was, it was after like years of looking at myself and, and seeing someone different than who was actually there. Griffin decides to leave hockey at the age of 17 after about four seasons in AAA, much to the dismay of his agent and prospective teams at the next level, including a U.S. college. He remains content with his decision, embracing his other interests and his race in ways he felt were sheltered away in hockey culture. I, I think a big, a big thing that happened was I basically just left the community and I started doing other things and I started meeting other people and and, I, and then I moved to Toronto and it, it was a totally, totally different experience, like living downtown from, from where I lived and, and the people I grew up with. And I just started to realize, like when I got there, I was like, what, this is like, this feels better, you know, like there's, there's it's very, like I went to Ryerson in my first year and, and I just met all these very diverse people who were very proud of their background. And at that point, I like, you know, I, I had left and I, I had left the game for different reasons than I think I, I did like when I look back on it now, you know, at the time I just was like, this, this just, I'm just not super passionate about this anymore. And like, I feel like I've kind of run my course. Um, but looking back, like, I think it was very clear that there was something about the culture that was making me really, really uncomfortable and, and pushing me away from it. Cause I didn't feel like I, I belonged in it. Like, you know, no other kids that were, were at the high level were being treated like in a similar way as to, to me and like the other kids who, who didn't look white. As the current online editor of Ryerson's eye-opener newspaper, Griffin continues to build his career in journalism. Looking back on the game, he wishes he was more outspoken against the toxic aspects of hockey and offers advice for racialized players dealing with similar experiences. I think you have to be loud, you know, and if I, if I could talk to a kid that was in my position, I would say when, when this kind of stuff happens, like when, you know, people, people on the ice, you know, they make some slight about your eyes or, or um, you know, your, your skin color or, you know, your family or, or where you come from or your, or your name even be loud about it. Like, don't, don't sit quietly with that. Like tell people like yell at people, fight with people like drop your gloves on the ice and fight them and and don't let that pass and and make a big deal out of it because you have every single right to and you have every single right to belong in that game and you have every single right to play it 
without having to face those things the same way that white kids don't have to face those things. Dr. Stacey Lorenz of the University of Alberta echoes Griffin's sentiments about malicious behaviors and toxic views that persist in hockey culture. He's an expert on sport and social issues, national identities, and violence in hockey. I think there has been some uh, recognition of issues in hockey cultures, uh, particularly around race and racism in hockey culture. Um, there's been some growing awareness around other forms of abuse in hockey culture, but I think there's still a long ways to go. And I think there's still a reluctance within the hockey establishment, if I can use that term, to, um, well, first of all, acknowledge how deeply rooted some of those issues are. And secondly, to actually uh, enact plans and take concrete action instead of just these kind of, uh, I'd call them performative kinds of displays that try to sell us that on the idea that they're attacking the problem. But really, if you dig a little bit deeper, a lot of it is for show and public relations. And uh, there's still not enough actual awareness and actual change that's taking place. Mm. Can you give me examples of these, I guess, things that have been happening just for appearance? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think the NHL, the way that the NHL handled their return to play this summer and some of the issues around the Black Lives Matter movement, especially in comparison to what other leagues have done, um, was really insufficient. As for the NHL, ESPN reports that there will be no playoff games tonight. The NHL played as scheduled last night, even as the events unfolded in the NBA. There were two games scheduled for tonight, Flyers Islanders in one and Canucks Golden Knights in the other. Um, it was it was far too vague, you know, rather than uh, coming being front and center with, you know, like other leagues with Black Lives Matter. They kind of um, vaguely talked about racism and you know we skate for black lives but that was one of you know a hundred things that people were skating for and some of them were just you know empty not things that weren't meaningful or didn't relate to true social issues and problems so i found that that was one element of it and also they really put far too much responsibility on individual players, in particular individual players of color to bear the burden of the league's response. Um, so you had Matt Dumba making an incredible statement when the NHL returned to play, but really kind of being left out on, an, out, out on his own and not fully supported by, I felt, the league as a whole. I know firsthand, as a minority, playing the great game of hockey, the unexplainable and difficult challenges that come with it. The Hockey Diversity Alliance and the NHL want kids to feel safe, 
comfortable and free-minded every time they enter an arena. Matt Dumba, a half-Filipino defenseman for the Minnesota Wild, is an athlete I continue to cheer for and whose career I follow closely. Not only is he open about his Asian-Canadian heritage and the sacrifices his immigrant mother made for his playing career, but he has become an outspoken voice for racialized players and fans. He is a founding member of the Hockey Diversity Alliance, an organization dedicated to their slogan of Change Hockey Culture. Here comes Dumba! Matt Dumba off the bench! In front! Scores! Matt Dumba! Ever since Dumba entered the NHL in 2013, it has been a breath of fresh air to my fandom. Not since Korea do I see an Asian player have this kind of platform in the NHL. It is still too early to tell what Dumba's playing legacy will be, but his work in promoting diversity and awareness in hockey continues to be inspiring to me, and I'm sure to many other racialized fans. And so the Hockey Diversity Alliance offers us something different, where uh, they're front and center in critiquing the league and its responses. And the fact that, you know, there's, there's been recognition that that might actually be possible and that might actually be a good thing instead of just that uh, immediate resistance to even acknowledging things. Um, I think that's been a positive step as well. So I think it's been a learning process just as an outsider looking in uh, for the organization as well. But I think they've definitely also played a very important role in, in trying to uh, um, put those issues at the forefront. Uh, they haven't been scared to criticize and speak out. And that's been refreshing. And I think bodes well for the future because far too often and one of the things that I've noted in some of my own research, um, hockey culture in particular is very uh, resistant to people speaking out on any issue. When you're singularly focused on a goal, it's kind of scary what you'll accept to try and achieve that goal. And if you talk, and if you, if you talk too much in the hockey world and you ask too many questions, they don't like that. Former NHL forward Dan Carcillo was a main figure last year who highlighted the rampant hazing and abuse in junior hockey. In his interview with CBC, he chronicled the violence he experienced during his time with the OHL Sarnia Sting. They like you to be a good little soldier and um, to do what they say. And if there's pushback or questions, um, you won't succeed. They're still unwilling to recognize that there are particular ways in which racism or other or forms of physical or emotional abuse. And again, I think all these things are related. Um, they really try to deflect those by, by suggesting that those are problems in society. And while I, you know, that, you know, they're, those are societal problems. They're not hockey problems. And while of course there's, a large degree of truth to that. I mean, these aren't problems that are isolated to sport or to hockey, but I think that there are ways that hockey culture makes those, uh, encourages those, those sorts of things and discourages um, close examinations of those problems. 
or still even a willingness to acknowledge that there are specific ways that hockey uh, encourages and allows some of those things to flourish. Dr. Lorenz provides the details of hockey culture in its present state. Negative aspects of the game are abundantly clear, but he believes that change can happen for the better. From his research, he believes hockey will need to become more welcoming to minorities if the game wants to reflect Canada authentically. And again, you see that in all sorts of places. So there are there are those who, you know, resist the idea that, well, you know, when we have these horrific examples of sexual abuse or initiations and that kind of thing in hockey, um, often again there it's sort of deflected by saying, well, those are those are widespread problems in society. You know, ignoring the fact that, you know, the the bantam draft in hockey that takes players far away from home and uproots them from their parents at a quite young age. The fact that coaches have still have so much power within that culture. The I, you know, the what I would what I mentioned before about the sort of um, you know, you don't say anything kind of mentality, you just take it, uh, that sort of thing. You know, all of those are heightened by the culture of hockey. And so uh, it, I think it would be important to recognize the unique ways that hockey is problematic. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's broader issues at play here as well. But that would be an important step, I would hope, to see within. Uh, the NHL and junior leagues and all the way down because they're still that's still missing in my in my view mm-hmm. so a lot of things too is what people bring up is diversity not just with the players but also with like management or even media personnel um, are these kind of tangible steps that hockey at any level can take it isn't just the players on the ice it's the whole of uh, the whole uh, structure around them and you've hit on it from uh, team personnel to media, uh, those who cover the game and so forth. I mean, it again speaks to s- sort of the in- the ways that I think all these things are connected across so many different areas. And that's another example of that. And, and I mean, the other thing is that all of those things would be in the business interest of the league as well to, uh, to actually help them to grow their market and so forth, and to appeal to a wider range of fans, um, and to recognize that they do have fans already in those groups who maybe, uh, you know, want just want to be more included and would also bring other people like them into the culture, you know, and it could be reframed in more positive ways. So rather than a defensive retreat to nostalgia and the past and the way hockey used to be. You people love you. you they come here, whatever it is. You love our way of life. You love our milk and honey. At least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. Former Hockey Night in Canada host Don Cherry being one example of how hockey used to be an example of the culture many fans still follow. I mean, there's dangers in over-mythologizing it, but why can't hockey be more inclusive and be more reflective of contemporary Canada and of the wide range of people who are in Canada instead of just a small group of those people? 
I, I think there's some danger in mythologizing that, that automatically we think, oh, well, when there's some semblance of diversity there, you know, suddenly we're, we've arrived and this sport is now, you know, multicultural and appeals to so many more people. So we have to be careful not to mythologize that part of it as well. Hockey still needs to wake up a, a lot more to that idea of embracing, embracing a wider group than they have historically. Hockey is a great game, but it could be a whole lot greater. And it starts with all of us. In terms of my career ambitions and taking the time to contemplate whether the landscape of hockey is even for me, sports journalist Erica Alaya reassures me that there's room for racialized journalists like us. She's a Black Latina journalist producing stories that highlight women and persons of color in hockey. Um, as someone, who, again, who identifies as Black Latina, I don't work with a lot of people that um, look like me um and not even just just uh as you know someone who's a person of color but also as a woman i work you know i do a lot of work in basketball particularly the wmba and that's a women's basketball league that's eight eighty percent of the players themselves are black women and women who identify as black but that's not what the media core looks like when I cover international hockey, so I've covered the rivalry series and I've gone to um, the NCAA tournament, there are not a lot of women of color. There are not a lot of women that cover the sport. So while I can't say that my personal experience has been one that I feel has been challenging because of my gender or because of my race and how I identify, I I noticed that the space is not full of people who look like me. As a pioneer covering women's hockey at all levels in the United States, her work is featured in the New York Times, The Athletic, SB Nation, and Fan Cited. She recalls her initial fandom for the game with cheering for the Metropolitan Riveters, a women's pro hockey team, and witnessing the play of U.S. stars Blake Bolden, a black player, and Julie Chu, an Asian player. From then on, she wanted to cover these racialized female athletes who are not garnering the attention she felt they deserved. Uh, because I didn't see a lot of women of color in the sport, when I had the opportunity to write features, I would write about Blake Bolden or Julie Chu or, you know, thinking about uh, Kelly Babstock. And I would write about uh, women of color just because that that was those were stories that I didn't I didn't know existed and I thought should be uh, told. In her New York Times piece, Alea reports on the racist attacks against New York Rangers prospect Kayon J. Miller during a fan Zoom meeting. Miller was sent persistent messages of the N-word. Alea said racialized fans in New York were not surprised by the attack on Miller and commented on their own safety at games and events. Experiences that people of color have in hockey are for whatever reason not turning into better policies to protect players in the case of Keandre Miller, but also not to protect fans. Um, you know, fans talk about, and in that piece, I, I was able to quote fans talking about how they don't necessarily feel safe when they go to Madison Square Garden. And, you know, 
whether you want to say that that is something that is perceived by an individual or not, I think what fans of color in the hockey space are saying is that when we experience racism, when we talk about racism in hockey, we want our experiences to be heard, um, to be understood, and to be, you know, part of the, the solution and part of the change. My interpretation is that there are things that frighten people when it comes to talking about race and racism. And those are things that people of color have had to get over <laughs> because we have to be equipped and prepared to at any point in time and for any reason, and usually not a very good one, <laughs> uh, to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves, um, or to um, validate our existence in a space. And that is not a lived experience of every person in the hockey community. And I think that those who maybe are not forced to think about race and racism on a daily basis have to open themselves up to understanding and realizing that there are things that they can change about their approach with um, that will make the hockey community more cohesive, more welcoming and inclusive. And I'm not exactly sure why that seems to be a contentious issue, but it, it does seem as, as though that is for some people. Um, and once we can get over that hurdle, uh, yes, absolutely. I think the hockey community can change. And I think we have seen that there has been some change, but there has to be a willingness to, as Black Girl Hockey Club would say, and as founder Renee Hess would say, to get uncomfortable. And that's exactly what they have their campaign now, the Get Uncomfortable campaign. And so I think hockey needs to um, commit to getting uncomfortable. I just wanted to share that I took the Black Girl Hockey Club Get Uncomfortable pledge. My goal as an ally is to listen, learn, and support the Black and BIPOC communities to make hockey culture welcoming for everyone. While she believes hockey culture has the potential to change, she remains critical about the Hockey Diversity Alliance. She appreciates their work, but says it should be more inclusive and open to other areas of the game, including women's hockey. The Hockey Diversity Alliance, I, in theory, I think, has a lot of promise. I will admit that as a woman, there are some things that uh, are um, that leave me wanting when it comes to the Hockey Diversity Alliance. And one of those things is that uh, I do think that it lacks gender diversity. Um, and it also lacks ethnic diversity from those players that have been listed. And why is that important? You know, I can make assumptions that the Hockey Diversity Alliance is meant to be for NHL players by NHL players, and that's fine. But when you use a when you use the terminology Hockey Diversity Alliance, um, for me at least, that that seems like a place that should be inclusive of women. Um, but even if even if again it's for NHL players by NHL players. I would argue that women in hockey spaces and women's hockey fan, or excuse me, women that are hockey fans, NHL fans, have long been also talking about maybe some of the sexism, um, even if it's just in, you know, language that is acceptable to use or, or you know, homophobic language that is used. 
the hockey fans have been talking about these things as well. I mean, I, when I entered the hockey community, you know, almost six seasons ago now, those are things that, that I became aware of very, very quickly. Uh, you know, they, they were brought to my attention and, and, you know, I noticed that that was part of the conversation very quickly. So I would like to see the Hockey Diversity Alliance find its footing in some of those conversations as well. And I do think that, you know, NHL players can be champions for that conversation. Um, but again, I would like to see them expand the horizons. And even if they don't add women um, players, so PWHPA players or NWHL players who are in the professional ranks on the women's hockey side. I mean, again, I'll go back to Blake Bolden or um, Cami Granado, Haley Wickenheiser. These are women who were elite hockey players are elite hockey players and work in the NHL. I think there should be room to consult and get their guidance when it comes to the Hockey Diversity Alliance. And there also are ways to challenge and motivate the Hockey Diversity Alliance to think even bigger and more long-term and think about a greater impact. Moving forward, she's optimistic that a new generation of sports journalists, including myself, want to cover hockey. She believes that the stories on racialized players, policies, and hockey culture need to be covered. Her advice is to remain committed to being an advocate in journalism. Well, first of all, I think it's amazing. Like that terminology, people coming in with that lens is extremely important. Um, you know, sometimes I get asked the question, you know, do I feel that there's room for advocacy in journalism? And I was actually speaking to someone else actually from Ryerson. And I, I said, well, it depends. It depends on the type of media that you want to do. So my overall advice to those coming into journalism who know that they want to bring that, as you said, you know, that racialized lens is that there's absolutely space for it. It's absolutely a necessity for journalism because my, my interpretation of journalism is that you are, you're telling a story and to tell a good compelling story, you have to look at it from multiple angles and pick and prod and, and ask questions. And there are a lot of people that want to, see things when it comes to how race is discussed and how to eradicate racism from hockey. There's a lot of people that want that and not enough um, outlets or organizations, teams, leagues that are willing to, you know, really carry the banner and take up the mantle. So there's absolutely a space for critical uh, thinking and, um, you know, really good journalism when it comes to when it comes to uh, talking about race and racism in hockey. She hopes hockey lives up to its recent slogans that promote diversity. On the surface, the messages are there, but the game requires more grassroots changes to validate the efforts. What I do hope that the hockey community will do is um, listen to BIPOC players, fans, journalists, and trust us and believe us when we say that there are challenges to us doing our respective jobs because of the lack of a critical conversation about race and racism. And it behooves us all and certainly behooves the future of the sport to sort that out and to make hockey, as the NHL slogan says, for everyone. Hockey is for everyone. Hockey is for everyone. Hockey is for everyone. 
Hockey is for everyone. Kasperi Kapanen. Robertson wants the puck and he scores! Nick Robertson with his first National Hockey League goal and it's 3-0 Toronto. Another emerging Asian player makes headlines. This time, it's someone on my local Toronto Maple Leafs. Nick Robertson, a half-Filipino forward, looks to be part of the future on the team and another Asian player to look out for. The numbers are small, but I have hope in him and many other young prospects of Asian descent coming up in the ranks. Let's hope this steady growth continues. Let's go nicer, please, to select from Owen Sound, Nick Suzuki. From these conversations, I have a clear picture of my career ambitions. Hockey still has a long way to go before its culture can truly change and reflect the diverse fan base that exists in Canada. I no longer view hockey as an explicit aspect of my national identity, but I believe it can become a catalyst for inclusion. My nostalgia for the Mighty Ducks, Paul Correa, Team Canada, and late night playoff runs still fuel my passion for hockey. However, I understand now what it takes to cover the deeper stories beyond what is seen on TV, the puff pieces, and the game scores. There are the negative aspects of the culture that require extensive revamping and development at all levels of the game. Hockey is not where it needs to be for all Canadians to enjoy right now, but the conversations and calls for positive change are getting louder. As the game finds itself at a crossroads, I recognize that my voice in the game matters. Now as a student journalist and in my future career, Oh, the good old hockey game. Let's make it a more inclusive place for all of its fans and players. Thanks to Daniel Centeno for sharing your story. And thanks to our executive producer, Emily Morantz, associate producer, Manuela Vega, artwork by Ben Shelley, theme music composed by John Powers. I've been your host, Gracie Bryson, and of course, huge shout out to Amanda Capito, a hockey stick. And remember, fitting in is overrated. 